So, good evening. Over the last few days, it's been mentioned several times that in the arc of this retreat, we have now moved from experiencing mostly unpleasant, afflictive, and harmful states to pleasant, wholesome, and beneficial states. So I just wanted to check, are you all there? (laughs) Have you all got with the program, as they say in the U.S.? Or there are perhaps one or two of you who are secretly thinking, I'm still dealing with sloth and torpor and restlessness and boredom and aversion and lust, calm, gladness, delight, samadhi. These are just a string of meaningless words to me right now. (laughs) Some kind of cruel Buddhist joke that I'm just not getting. Or perhaps some of you have experienced some sustained moments of ease or bliss, but that was two days ago, and you've been back in hell ever since. (laughs) Others of you might be bouncing backwards and forwards between pleasant and unpleasant at such a rapid pace that you're afraid of getting psychological whiplash, which, by the way, is not a real condition. I just made that up, so don't add it to your list of things to worry about on retreat. What I am trying to do here is just normalize the wide range of experiences that each of us might be having right now. And to reassure you that wherever you feel to be in this process is totally fine. Whether you think you're doing very well, average, or very not well, it's irrelevant because thanks to the truth of impermanence, it's going to change. So early on in my own practice, I wasted huge amounts of time and energy struggling to get the unpleasant experiences to go away and the pleasant experiences to stay. And even though I knew intellectually that this wasn't the right approach, I still would feel mystified, even mortified, whenever those fleeting moments of ease and calm and peace dissolved into misery. I took it all very personally, And I assumed that I must have done something wrong whenever those skillful states disappeared. So for me, it was a huge relief when I first heard one teacher, I think it was Michelle MacDonald, talk about what she referred to as cycles of purity and purification. And this is the understanding that there are natural rhythms in the way that the practice unfolds and that there's a causal relationship between these different phases. The so-called purification stage is when we're navigating all of the various challenging emotions and moods and mind states that come up. And as we do learn how to meet these painful formations skillfully with kind curiosity, openness, equanimity, they do eventually release. And then we might find ourselves in the so-called purity stage, when the mind becomes calm, clear, open, equanimous. Sometimes this purity stage is even accompanied by a few moments of bliss. And then the natural tendency is to think, at last, now I've finally got it. This is great. I can cruise now for the rest of this retreat and I'm pretty sure you can guess what happens next. Perhaps in the very next sitting, or a couple of hours later, or maybe the next day, everything feels like it falls apart, and we find ourselves caught in yet another multiple hindrance attack, perhaps even seemingly more intense than before. And so once more, we're back in a purification cycle, And we stay there until we can develop enough skill to let the painful mental states dissolve, which then allows us to experience the next purity phase or cycle, and so on. And there is a causal relationship between these two phases. It's because of the calm and clarity that the next level of stuff, in quotation marks, can come up into consciousness. And then when we have learned how to navigate those particular challenges, they release, and the mind settles into even deeper ease, calm, and peace, which in turn allows the next more subtle 
afflictive states to be revealed and so on. And the more often this happens, the clearer it becomes that these are just natural phases of the practice. With wisdom, we understand that these cycles of purity and purification are the practice unfolding and developing exactly as it should. But if we try to fix, hold on, or reject any of these cycles, we'll suffer. It's about like the swing of a pendulum. If we hold on to the pendulum as it swings, we'll be taken for a wild ride. But if we can make space to simply know, okay, now it's like this, now this, now this, eventually the pendulum swings get a bit less dramatic. And we do find ourselves spending more time in states of ease, clarity, equanimity. So even though we might know that intellectually, we might try to tell ourselves, okay, this is just the practice naturally unfolding. What often gets in the way of that genuine opening to what's going on are some very deeply conditioned habits of mind, various kinds of thought patterns that are very painful and also very familiar, that seem true, real, and just who I am. So following on from Guy's talk on working with difficult emotions a few nights ago, maybe a few weeks ago actually, Tonight, I want to spend a bit of time exploring how to work with difficult thought patterns, and specifically some common types of afflictive thought patterns that often show up quite intensely on retreat, which is a huge area to try to talk about in just one Dharma talk. So I'm going to try and keep it focused just on two examples of particularly painful patterns and two particular areas of retreat where they tend to get activated. So of the two afflictive mental patterns I want to talk about, the first is self-beliefs about not being good enough, not being worthy, not having what it takes. And because that's quite a lot to say, I'm going to call this lack mind for short. That's lack as in L-A-C-K. Sense of not being good enough, not being worthy, coming from a place of lack. And this painful state often shows up on retreat in the individual practice meetings with the teachers. And its symptoms can be obsessive rehearsing before the meeting, agitation, anxiety, and embarrassment during the meeting, and then compulsive self-criticism after the meeting. So this is one very common area where lack mind shows up. And then the second state is in some ways rooted in the same lack mind. It's a variation of it known as comparing mind. That very common tendency to assess oneself in relation to other people as being either better than, worse than, or equal to. And in the Buddha's teachings, this is known as mana, M-A-N-A. And the symptoms are being constantly aware of what other people are doing and hyper-aware of ourselves and what we're doing in comparison. Often that awareness is accompanied by an inner monologue about how slow or fast that other person is walking And in contrast, how slow or fast we are walking. How mindfully or carelessly that other person is eating. And how mindfully or carelessly we're eating. How well or badly that other person is doing their yogi job. And how well or badly we are doing our yogi job. And so on and so on and so on. And comparing mind is experienced pretty much anywhere on retreat where there are other people in the meditation hall, in the dining room, on the walking tracks. But I like to focus tonight on how it shows up in the context of our yogi jobs. Because again, this is an aspect of retreat that often activates comparing mind pretty intensely. And then in terms of antidotes to these afflictive patterns, I'm going to be 
um, turning to what in the later Buddhist tradition became known as the two wings to awakening, namely wisdom and compassion. And you can get a sense of that framing of them as two wings, that we need both wings to be equally well-developed if we're going to metaphorically fly. So in that context, the wisdom wing includes our mindfulness and insight practice. And the compassion wing includes compassion itself, but also all four of the Brahma-Vihara practices that I gave an overview of last week. So tonight I won't probably have much time to touch into compassion and self-compassion, so I might need to save that for a later talk. So coming back to what I'm calling lack mind, this mental pattern of not having enough, of not being enough, of being inadequate or fundamentally flawed. This is an example of... Uh, in Buddhist terms, what we call a sankhara, a volitional formation. It's one of the five aggregates, a, a mental construct that we ourselves have created, but through our clinging to it, our identifying with it, our taking it personally, we then inhabit it as if it was actual reality. And as you might recognize from this description of lack mind, it's also a serious distortion of perception, as Annie talked about the other night. It's a misperception that stops us from seeing clearly. It keeps us locked into a small sense of me, permanently isolated and disconnected from the other human beings around us. And early on in my own practice, lack mind was something that I struggled with for quite a few years, And back then, I always believed that it was something unique to me, my specific family and social conditioning. And I believed that, by contrast, everyone else had it all together. Everyone else was fundamentally well-balanced and living blissfully free of even the slightest trace of neurosis. And it was really only when I started to be more in this role and started to hear people describe very similar struggles that I started to realize just how common this lack mind actually is. So to give just one real-life recent example, I was teaching a series of weekend classes uh, a few months ago and I was like, we were exploring fear and anxiety and ways to transform them. And as a way of easing into the first of the six classes, I invited people to do a written exercise where they just made two lists. One listing areas in their daily life where anxieties or fears commonly came up. And then one listing where anxieties and fears commonly came up in relation to their dharma practice. And then I collected all the lists that they'd written, and I typed them up into a single document to share with the whole group. And if you'd asked me to guess beforehand what kind of things people might identify in terms of their anxieties and fears, I would have had a pretty good idea. But still, when I saw the actual lists and I typed them up, it was poignant, even painful, because the same phrases kept coming up over and over again. The single phrase, quote, not good enough, appeared numerous times. And then there were lots of variations on that theme. Not having enough money, not being smart enough, not working fast enough, not being worthy enough. And then the second major theme was around rejection, abandonment, and not belonging. For example, fear of failure, fear that people won't like me for who I really am, fear of being alone, fearing of being rejected, of being outside a family or a tribe, fear of being found out as a total fraud, And perhaps some of you might recognize some traces of similar thought patterns and beliefs in your own experience. 
And I wanted to share just a few of those examples because what was striking to me was that this was a self-selected Dharma study group, a group of people who were interested in understanding themselves and who had some orientation to practicing wisdom and kindness and compassion and yet still this deep sense of unworthiness and fear of rejection was so pervasive. And at the same time, pretty much everyone felt that they were the only ones who were experiencing it. So I share that example just to try to normalize how common this lack mind is. So hopefully, if it is coming up for you, it might strengthen your capacity to meet it with wisdom and compassion. So as I said earlier, I wanted to focus a little bit on where lack mind often shows up in the context of our individual practice meetings with the teachers. Because this isn't an aspect of retreat practice that I've heard mentioned much in Dharma talks, if at all. And yet, in my own experience, it's almost designed to bring up different forms of unworthiness and consequent suffering if we don't understand how to relate to it skillfully. So as I mentioned earlier, the first symptom that lack mind might be operating is noticing how much time we're spending rehearsing what to say before the meeting. And it's fine to jot down a few points about what you want to say, perhaps some questions that you might have. But if it turns into hours of ruminating about, should I say this or should I say that? Is that going to sound intelligent? Will that sound stupid? Bring in mindfulness to recognize, oh, perhaps this is lack mind operating and withdraw your energy from the content of the thoughts and instead know or name or note, okay, rehearsing is like this. Anxiety is like this. Lack mind is like this. And that simple recognition is very powerful practice that can strengthen your capacity to stay present as the meeting time gets closer and perhaps you're waiting up there in what we call Guru Alley. (laughs) So right before the meeting, while you're waiting for your appointed time, that can be a beautiful opportunity to cultivate the Brahma-Viharas, particularly metta, compassion, self-compassion. You might experiment with bringing awareness to the other yogis around you, knowing that no matter how calm and composed they might look on the outside, chances are that on the inside they might be navigating some flickers of unworthiness and so on. This is just a part of being human. And the more we can understand how universal it is and hopefully develop a sense of humor for it, the less personally we can take it. And then grounded in mindfulness, in metta and self-compassion, when we come into the actual meeting, we might have more ability to stay steady with some of those deeper sankharas, those deeply conditioned patterns that might be getting activated. So even though we might be innocently describing how we're working with the anchor and the walking practice and the development of the awakening factors, underneath that we might also be noticing some flickerers of desire for approval or fear of rejection or perhaps waves of irritation and frustration or a sudden feeling of being six years old So when I sat my first three-month retreat, I had this, what turned out to be a fairly naive belief that I would be experiencing all of these very esoteric, refined, exalted spiritual states. And as the retreat progressed, I found myself feeling more and more like a (laughs) six-year-old. So again, just normalizing all of this rather than it being a source of shame because shame is a very potent force that gets in the way of clear seeing, of insight. Mm -hmm. 
And as a defense against this shame, many of us have developed various strategies against it. So bringing awareness to these, even in the middle of the practice meeting, is actually very high-level practice. Okay, so we make it through the practice meeting. In the moment, it seems like it's gone okay, but then for some reason we find ourselves spending the next few hours caught in thoughts about what we should have said and why we said that, what we should have said instead, whether the teacher really got it or was just pretending to understand and whether they secretly think we're an idiot, a hopeless case, a total waste of their time. And again, if you notice this pattern coming up, trying to notice it with clarity and compassion, staying out of the content of the thinking and know it as a kind of a mental reflex, just a reverb of not good enough. And by way of reassurance, I can tell you that from the other side of the meeting process, all of us teachers are practicing with you and for you. For myself, I'm just happy that you're here at all. And anything else that might happen in terms of practice is a bonus. So as this sankara of lack mind gets a little softer, you might see if the practice meetings can be an opportunity to take in some of the kindness and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity that we're offering you. So that perhaps when there's a little more clarity about lack mind, we can start to recognize its close cousin, which is comparing mind. And this one has deep historical roots. It was recognized all the way back in the time of the Buddha. And he referred to comparing mind as mana, M-A-N-A, a term that's usually translated into English as conceit. The very common tendency to compare and to assess ourselves in relation to other people as being better than, worse than, or same as. And in the Buddha's understanding, all three of these are seen as equally distorted aspects of misperception because they assume a fixed identity or a static personality in ourselves and in others. And I want to highlight that although manna is usually translated as conceit, in English the word conceit is usually reserved just for thinking oneself superior to others. But in the Buddha's understanding, thinking oneself inferior to others is just as equally a form of conceit as is thinking of ourselves as equal. And if we can really take that on as a practice perspective, it can have far-reaching implications. And comparing mind operates not only in relation to other people, but also in relation to ourselves. A very common tendency to evaluate and compare how we used to be in the past with how we are now anticipating how much better we're going to be in the future. But both of those views also carry a fixed identity that continues from the past through the present to the future. And often if we look more closely at that identity, we see that we're thinking it of someone who needs to improve, to get better, to make progress. And we might see that even in the course of one sitting, So at the start, when we come into the hall, there might be a sense of, right, this is the one where I finally get it. The mind is going to settle, deep samadhi is going to develop, the awakening factors will come into play, and is it happening yet? Is it happening yet? How's my calm? Is there concentration? Where's that rapture they keep talking about? And again, that's all comparing mind at work. So just as a side note... Comparing mind here is very different from discernment, from seeing clearly, from simply recognizing when skillful states are present and when they're absent. So we don't want to throw the metaphorical baby out with the bathwater. We do want to be able to recognize what's happening as it's happening. This is a function of right effort. 
knowing how to recognize and release unskillful mental qualities and how to strengthen skillful ones without referring back to a fixed sense of me, the one who is in control and who is responsible for micromanaging this whole project. So the other night, Brian talked about the difference between aspiration and desperation. And with aspiration, there's a sense of openness, curiosity, engaged interest, non-attachment to outcomes. With desperation, though, perhaps I don't even need to describe it, the mind collapses into a storm of self-referencing thoughts. It gets tighter and tighter, and those patterns of not good enough, of lack mind, of comparing mind get stronger. So just in case that's sounding a little abstract, I'd like to talk about comparing mind in relation to another aspect of being on retreat that's, in my own experience, not talked about very often. That's the realm, the arena of our yogi jobs. So when I was on staff here, I listened to over 500 Dharma talks. And as far as I recall, I don't remember ever hearing anyone talk about how to practice with yogi jobs. But in my own experience, this has been a very potent and sometimes very painfully revealing arena of practice. And I could probably give at least another couple of talks just relating my misadventures in yogi job land (laughs) because it took me an embarrassingly long time to understand that my yogi job was part of the retreat. It wasn't just an irritating diversion from the real practice of sitting and walking. And in my own experience, getting caught in comparing mind was a very common aspect of yogi job. Whether I was working alone or with others, my mind would constantly default into my bathroom was cleaned much more thoroughly than theirs. Look at him, he's sweeping so much faster than me, I'd better pick up the pace. Why is that cook paying so much attention to them? They're not that great at chopping, and so on, and so on, and so on. (laughs) Sounds like maybe you recognize some of that. The problem with comparing mind is that it's so seductive. It easily undermines our mindfulness and pulls us into acting out on it. Instead of keeping our attention inwards, recognizing the sankharas and inviting them to release we get caught in the conditioning. So as an example of how not to do it, here's a cautionary tale from my own first three-month retreat at IMS in 2003. So my work assignment back then involved chopping veggies with a team of six people. And about halfway into the retreat, somebody had to leave, and so a new person came in. And the cooks gave her a full orientation, included all the instructions that she needed to do the job. But for some reason, I decided that I needed to be helpful. And that was my first mistake, getting involved where I definitely didn't need to be. So I didn't break the silence, but I used body language and pointed things out for her and felt at the end of the session pretty pleased with myself about how helpful I'd been, unlike the rest of the people on the team who I thought had more or less ignored her. So I was caught in the sankara of being helpful. And then a few hours later, a note from me appeared on the bulletin board. It turned out to be from the new person, and it said something like, I'm sorry for making you so angry this morning. And my mind just got caught in a storm of comparing and judging. Why did she think I was angry? What did I do wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. It's her fault. What's wrong with her? She's the one who's angry, or maybe she's something seeing I'm not seeing, and so on and on and on. Proliferation, zero mindfulness, agitation. I decided to write her a note. But before I could do it, the teachers made an announcement that nobody was to leave notes for other people under any circumstances. So then I was really in a bind because if I didn't leave a note for her, she'd definitely think I was angry. And so I came up with a genius idea. (laughs) Are you reading my mind? (laughs) 
I would just, I knew she was staying on the same floor as me, so I thought I'd just write her a note and slip it under her door. <laughs> and so, because we've been told not to write notes, I thought I'll keep it really short and simple. And I just said, don't worry, I'm not angry with you. And I didn't sign it, because obviously she knew who it was from. I put it under her door, and the next day she seemed more relaxed. So I thought, great, that worked. But the day after, I was walking back to my room, and I saw her going into a completely different room. And then I realized that I'd put the note under a totally different yogi's door. I never found out who that yogi was, so it could even be one of you. So if it is one of you, I'm really sorry, but... Can you imagine getting a note under your door? Don't worry, I'm not angry with you. It's like the ultimate passive-aggressive statement. So I was spinning out, the other yogi was spinning out, some unknown third yogi was spinning out. So I hope you get a sense of why we say maintain noble silence. Maintain the integrity of the retreat container. In Australia, they have a saying that things can get bigger than Ben-Hur. You know, the epic movie that was out in the 50s. This is just one example of how things spiral out of control and get bigger than Ben-Hur, create all these unnecessary dramas. And at this point in the retreat, this is often where the container starts to get a little leaky. The sankharas are getting stronger. It's very tempting just to connect, to communicate, to get a little more whatever. Again, with kindness, with compassion, do your best to rein it in. This is the right effort that I mentioned briefly this morning, to restrain the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mental states to abandon the unwholesome mental states that have arisen, to develop unarisen, wholesome mental states, and to maintain those wholesome mental states that have arisen, to not let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. So this is really what we're doing here in this investigation of these sankharas, these afflictive mental patterns. And I'd like to say a little bit more now about bringing the wisdom wing to them. The wisdom wing helps us to see through our our distorted perceptions by showing us the truth that everything is constantly changing. Nothing can give us lasting satisfaction. And there is no fixed permanent identity that I can call myself at the center of it all. So in other words, the three marks of existence, the three universal characteristics of anicca or impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta or not-self. And these three point to the truth that everything we experience is impermanent, it's imperfect, and it's impersonal. So everything is constantly changing. It's impermanent. None of, us, none of it can give us lasting satisfaction. It's imperfect. And none of it is our fault. It's impersonal. The more deeply we can see into these three characteristics, the more powerfully the sankharas release and we experience ease, happiness, peace, and freedom. The opposite is also true. The more we resist the truth of these three insights, the more we suffer. So I'd like to look a bit more closely now about how they apply to afflictive thought patterns. So anicca, impermanence, can be a powerful ally in weakening deeply conditioned sankharas when we can consciously remind ourselves of the truth of change. For example, when an afflictive thought pattern does come up, instead of struggling to avoid it or get rid of it, one option might be to try writing it out, simply knowing this too shall pass. This too shall pass. I don't have to act out on it. 
So in the example of the yogi job, when the person thought I was angry, I could have known, okay, this is something getting activated. It will pass. I don't have to take action. Because of the truth of change, at some point, the painful state will disappear of its own accord. And understanding this helps release the grip of trying to control it. Often, though, the tendency is to collapse into the afflictive state. And unconsciously, we often make it feel more solid and more permanent by the way we talk about it to ourselves in our inner dialogue. So when we're practicing mindfulness of the mind and we listen to what we're telling ourselves, we quite often hear statements like, I'm always anxious. I never experience any calm. I'm constantly getting it wrong. And words such as always and never and constantly are symptoms of what psychologists call absolutist thinking, which is an unhealthy thinking style linked to anxiety and depression. And in Buddhist terms, this thinking style is unhealthy because it reinforces the delusion of permanence. So if you do notice some of those absolutist terms coming up in the mind, you might experiment, play with the language, change it, and see if you can find something that's more accurate, more nuanced, more factually true. So rather than, I'm always anxious, I have a tendency to feel anxious under certain conditions. Rather than, I never experience any calm, I haven't yet had much experience of tranquility. Rather than I'm constantly getting wrong, I sometimes feel that my practice isn't going as well as it could. Do you hear the difference? And feel it energetically? Even just that small shift in language can help support the understanding that these mental states are not as permanent and continuous as we'd like to believe. Sometimes, though, when I've suggested this to people in individual meetings, they try to convince me that I'm wrong and that their painful patterns have always been there. They're constantly present right now and they will be into the future forever and ever. Amen. So one tool that can be helpful to change this misperception is to play with quantifying the intensity of the afflictive state on a scale of 0 to 10. So just taking anxiety as a somewhat random example, on a scale of 0 to 10, 0 would be complete calm and 10 would be a full-blown panic attack. And so as we're going about the day, we might from time to time just check and notice what degree of anxiety is present now. Is it a 2, a 5, a 7.5? And often when people do this, they realize that sometimes there's much less anxiety than they might normally notice. Again, because of the mind's inherent negativity bias, the tendency is not to register those moments of non-anxiety. So this using of the scale from 0 to 10 can be a mindfulness tool that helps us to acknowledge those times when anxiety might be quite low or perhaps even gone completely. And then we can train in abiding in those times, really letting in how does it feel in the body and the heart-mind when we're not anxious. So as I said this morning, this is the training in getting used to it. So the second of the three characteristics is dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, (laughs) the truth of imperfection. And this can also be a powerful ally in reducing the power of sankharas, even though it can also be a hard one to accept. Because most of us are so driven to try to make everything all right or preferably perfect. And most of us expend a huge amount of energy trying to control our external circumstances, trying to make all the conditions around us and even the people around us be exactly the way we want them to be. 
there's often a deeply unconscious assumption that if I can just do X or Y or Z, then I'll be okay, then I'll be happy. But in spite of all of that effort, not many of us can say that we've experienced the lasting happiness that we keep hoping for. Of course, there are moments of happiness, sometimes many moments of intense happiness. But overall, because of the truth of impermanence, conditions are unstable, constantly changing, incapable of giving us lasting satisfaction. And there can be something about the truth of dukkha, of imperfection, that triggers us into even stronger perfectionism and idealism and efforts to control ourselves and other people. And we often bring that same perfectionism into our Dharma practice. We unconsciously turn the whole thing into a giant self-improvement project, one that's actually rooted in self-aversion and resistance to the truth of dukkha. And both of these fuel lack mind and comparing mind. So just to reassure you that suggesting we acknowledge the truth of unsatisfactoriness doesn't mean we just give up completely, resign ourselves to being driven by afflictive emotions, well, it's all dukkha anyway. That would be apathy rather than true acceptance. So developing a more balanced relationship to afflictive mind states comes as our practice matures. And we're able to look non-judgmentally at those underlying motivations and discern what we might be able to change and accept what we can't. So specifically when it comes to afflictive states, we want to really be on the lookout for any resistance to them, any expectation that they shouldn't be happening, that they're wrong, bad, a problem to be got rid of ASAP. I think most of us have areas of our psyche that we're not so keen on acknowledging or looking at. And a few years ago, I I heard Ajahn Suchito, I read in a book, he used the phrase, orphans of consciousness. And I found that a very potent uh, term to describe those aspects of our psyches that we often have a somewhat conflicted relationship to, orphans of consciousness. And when I read that phrase, I realized, wow, I've been running an orphanage for years now. (laughs) It's about time I started learning how to take care of these orphans a little better than I have been. So rather than resisting these afflictive states, we might understand that because we're human beings with vulnerable human bodies, vulnerable human hearts, vulnerable human minds, we are susceptible to these afflictive patterns. This is normal and natural. But even though we might understand this in theory, I think most of us have the tendency to take our afflictive mind states very personally. As I said earlier, in my own experience, I really saw them as my own unique shortcoming, my own unique weakness, my own unique neurosis. So here we can bring in the third universal characteristic of anatta, the understanding that everything we experience is an impersonal process. It's not happening to a fixed, solid sense of self who dwells at the center of the universe, even though it might often feel that way. And we'll likely be giving more talks on anatta later in the retreat. So for now, just to touch into what happens when we relate to afflictive states without this understanding of not-self. As a general rule, the more painful the thought patterns are, the more deeply rooted they are, they are, the more likely it is that we'll take them personally, believe them to be me, mine, who I am. And again, if we pay attention to our inner language, the way we talk to ourselves, we often see this tendency to take ownership of the states, to reinforce them and turn them into an identity of some kind. So we might tell ourselves, I am an angry type, 
or I am a victim of workplace bullying, or I am a highly realized meditator. And each of those statements might have some partial truth, but when they're expressed that way in very definitive statements, they become prisons that keep us stuck in relating to the world in just one way. And in my own practice, when I started to listen to my inner language more carefully, I was surprised to see how often that phrase, I am, dot, 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 was followed by a statement that was rarely true. If I really looked at those sentences that began with, I am such and such, at best they were partially true, temporarily true, but they were almost never as fully true as the force of them was expressed in my mind. So again, we can play with the language. So rather than telling myself I'm an angry type, we might say under certain conditions I have a tendency to express irritation and frustration. Rather than I'm a victim of workplace bullying, that might eventually become in a highly toxic work environment, I found it hard to stand up for myself. I'm a highly realized meditator might become right now in this meditation session, the practice feels to be going well. And again, you might feel the difference energetically in the different sets of language. So we're not negating the understanding that there is a person who at times experiences anger or fear or success. But what we are doing is reducing the tendency to collapse one's entire identity into it by using more nuanced language that's closer to the truth of anicca, dukkha, anatta. So, so far I've mostly been exploring the wisdom wing of the practice And because of time constraints, I think it will be more compassionate to save an exploration of the compassion wing for another talk. But I would like to close just by coming back briefly to the connection between these two wings of wisdom and compassion and how they come together in the Brahma-Vihara practices as boundless states. So if you remember back to last week, I mentioned... In my overview of these four skillful qualities of kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, I mentioned that together these four are known as the four sublime abidings, the heavenly realms, the boundless states. And this last phrase, boundless states, comes from a translation of the Pali word apamana. And that mana part of the word is the same mana that I referred to earlier, the Pali word that's usually translated as conceit or comparing mind. So throughout the Buddha's teachings, he used three different words to describe what we ordinarily and maybe simplistically in English call mind. Words such as vijnana or consciousness, citta, heart mind, which includes our emotions, and mano or manas, which refers to the cognitive aspect of the mind. It's comparing, contrasting function. So what I want to highlight is that mano or manas in the Buddha's teachings is the aspect of mind that cognizes, recognizes, perceives, makes distinctions, measures, compares, and conceptualizes, all of which can be useful functions of the mind, but if they're not related to with mindfulness, especially when we bring them to bear on other people and ourselves, they can become mana in the form of conceit, of comparing mind. So the opposite of that is the Pali term apamana, which means boundless or measureless not comparing, not conceiving, not constructing. So 
So in this sense, when these Brahma-Viharas are developed to their utmost, they become completely without limits, completely unconditional, completely boundless. And the power of these four beautiful qualities to overcome afflictive mental states is emphasized in a passage from the Majjhima Nikaya. And when I was first found this particular passage, it stood out for me because it contains exclamation points, exclamation marks. So those of you who are familiar with the suttas, the discourses, probably know that mostly the language is fairly understated, neutral. But in this passage, the language is quite directive, even emphatic. It says, cultivate the meditation on metta, exclamation mark, for by cultivating the meditation on metta, ill will disappears. Cultivate the meditation on compassion, exclamation mark, for by cultivating the meditation on compassion, cruelty disappears. Cultivate the meditation on appreciative joy. For by cultivating the meditation on appreciative joy, listlessness disappears. Listlessness is apathy or weariness. Cultivate the meditation on equanimity. For by cultivating the meditation on equanimity, anger disappears. So through this practice of cultivating these four Brahma-Vihara states, these apamana or boundless states, the heart-mind can release its pervasive habit of comparing and assessing and judging and measuring. And we can dwell more and more fully in the sublime states of kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And these become more and more our default setting. So this process of learning how to meet our afflictive thought patterns with kindness and compassion, clarity and wisdom, doesn't only bring psychological relief. It has the potential to lead all the way to the highest happiness, the peace of Nibbana. So may all of us see through our sankharas more and more fully in the service of our own freedom, and the freedom of all. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.